that you are the same yesterday and today and forever. And Jesus, we stand on that truth, on that absolute, and with that assurance. Jesus Christ, yesterday, today, and forever, the same. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that in an ever-changing world, you are a constant. You are solid. You are trustworthy. You are faithful. You are consistent. You are stable. In the clamor for change, we know we can trust you. Father, even in the expression of yourself is the great I am. We know that you are forever in the present and in this place and solid. And we take refuge in you. You are our stronghold, our fortress, Father. Jesus, you're our rock, our ever-present help in time of need. When our heads get spinning in this world, there is such great peace in coming before you and settling at your feet. And this we want to do now, this morning, Lord. While our songs of worship and our praise still hang in the air, we want to gather in around you at your feet. Like your good friend Mary, we want to still ourselves. We want to hear from you. We ask that you tell us the old stories. And Holy Spirit of Jesus, as you do so, would you revive our hearts and remind us of your goodness and your faithfulness forever and ever to all generations. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in 1 Samuel chapter, 2 Samuel, sorry, 2 Samuel chapter 6. I'm going to begin in verse 1. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 1. Now David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. David arose and went with all the people who were with him to Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts who is enthroned above the cherubim. They placed the ark of God on a new cart that they might bring it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were leading the new cart. So they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Ahio was walking ahead of the ark. Meanwhile, David, with all the house of Israel, was celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments of fir wood, with lyres and harps and tambourines, castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it. 
And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence, and he died there by the ark of God. David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. So David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of God come to me? David was unwilling to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David with him, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Thus the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Now it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed this household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him on account of the ark of God. David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. And so it was, when the bearers of the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling. And David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouting and the sound of the trumpet. Then it happened, as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, that Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. So they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent which David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offering and the peace offering, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Further, he distributed to all the people, to all the multitude of Israel, both to men and women, a cake of bread, one of dates and one of raisins, to each one. And all the people departed, each to his house. But when David returned to bless his household, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel distinguished himself today. He uncovered himself today. In the eyes of his servants, maids, as one of the foolish ones, shamelessly uncovers himself. So David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore I will celebrate before the Lord. I will be more lightly esteemed than this, and I will be humble in my own eyes, but with the maids of whom you have spoken, with them I will be distinguished. Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. It's an interesting story, one you probably have heard, and one that as I approached it, I thought, okay, I've heard many sermons on this, and I've I've heard this approach many different ways, and the temptation when doing so, when, when approaching something that's been taught a lot, is to try and find a new thing. Well, I don't know if there's going to be anything new in this for you, that's up to the Lord, But I was thinking, going through this, about the fact that I live, many of you as well, we live in a place where we are pressed between the new and the ancient. We live in a world where, even as Daniel prophesied, the case would be knowledge is increasing at an incredible, incredible rate. How we can even keep up with all the constancy of the knowledge and the information that is just coming at us I was telling Cheryl the other day I like to play online games every now and then, just the little dumb ones, not the complex ones, but you know, like backgammon, because I can do that, you know. I like to play checkers, 
You know, and, and I love it, especially when I'm playing checkers and all of a sudden the person I'm playing online is, is Hebrew. It's like, oh, cool. <laughs> you know, I let them win, you know. <laughs> but I've gotten to the point where, literally, I have learned that I can play backgammon checkers and internet reversi all at the same time. You know, I'm going like this. And, and when I first started playing backgammon online, it was relaxing. Yeah. Click. Wait for the guy to take his turn. Click. Guy takes his turn. Now it's like, click, oh, the guy moved on checker. Okay, okay, oh, now we're back and back. Oh, and back between all three, and, and you know, and I find myself very stressed. <laughs> the fun has gone out of it. Now it's a challenge. The old and the new. That this is the place that 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 I, I struggle. And I'll tell you something, the older I get, the more I find myself gravitating to the ancient things the less impressed I am with the new. used to be when I was a young youth pastor, first started out in in youth ministry, if I was going to find a commentary, it had to be something written in the last couple of years because I didn't want any of that old dusty stuff. Nowadays, I find some of the best commentaries were written in the 1800s. As a matter of fact, what I discover is the best commentary on the Old Testament is the New Testament, and the best commentary on the New Testament is the Old Testament, so I can just go back thousands of years, and I'm a very happy guy. I used to have an issue with a a two-word phrase that would curdle my stomach when I heard it. It's just because it sounded so ancient. And that phrase was sound doctrine. I didn't like it. I didn't like the word doctrine. So churchy. It was so close to dogma. By the way, you know the difference, don't you? Doctrine is just teaching. Dogma is is man-made, you know, traditions. But I didn't like it. My young faith heard this phrase, sound doctrine, and it sounded to me archaic and old school. And I didn't want archaic and old school. Someone would walk in with a King James Bible and I'd say, (laughs) no, we need the latest, most recent thing. We need something that's relevant to our culture, something that really speaks today. Well, I've grown up a little bit since then. And I'm so thankful in that time that God has never given up on me. 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 3 says the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine but wanting to have their ears tickled they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires what, what by the way is the number one buzzword in the political campaigning going on both Republican and Democrat side today what's the number one word do you know see which is funny because it's always the number one word we ought to change things in Washington and that's what the guys before you said. And the guy before him said that too. And the guy before him, he said change. And everybody gets all excited about change. As if change is always good. And the world is ever changing. And ever morphing. But it's not getting better. I don't buy it. I don't buy this whole concept of change. I can tell you right now, and I don't want to be doom and gloom, but I don't care who's elected, we're still going to have problems. It's not going to get better. Until we elect Jesus Christ as Lord over everything, then it's going to be perfect. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7, the Hebrew writer said, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings. Isn't that interesting, that that famous Christian phrase, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, is placed right in the middle of two verses about sound doctrine. Why is that? Because we need to understand, Jesus is the backbone of Scripture. 
There is profound stability in Jesus Christ that actually encourages us to stand on Him as our foundation. Not to constantly be looking for change and buzz and thrill, but to stand on Jesus because He is rock solid, never changing, always the same. Doesn't mean He's boring. Because honestly, there's nothing more thrilling than a life lived in the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Jesus compared it to the wind that blows wherever it pleases. You hear the sound of it, you don't know where it's coming from or where it's going. So it is with someone who's born of the Spirit. Woohoo! Get out your hang glider because walking with Jesus is great. It is exciting, it is a thrill ride, but He is safe. It's like getting on the roller coaster. You know, where you know the roller coaster is solid and not going to go off the track, as opposed to those fares that come around every now and then, and if you do get on that thing, you take your life into your own hands. You can see the track rattling and coming apart just as you go by. And, you know, that's the kind of change Washington offers. But Jesus is solid. Exciting, yes, but absolutely solid. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3.11, No man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Oh yeah, Rick, well, we've heard that verse before. You're going to hear it again. No man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He is the foundation. And so everything we study in Scripture comes back to Jesus. Everything that we pray needs to be focused on the person of Jesus Christ. He is our foundation. Without Him, we got nothing. Without Him, we are tossed to and fro like ships without rudders, like cars without steering wheels. Without Him, everything constantly changes. And so David wrote in Psalm 18, verse 2, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Now, Last week I shared a little bit about my concerns with the intense focus in the church and among Christians on this idea of cultural relativity. Trying to fashion the church into such an institution that is not even seen as an institution, but it's something that is relative to culture, speaks the language, hangs in the right lingo. The desire to retrofit the church, to fit the culture, I fear is eroding eternal absolutes that God wants to place into the heart of man. I, I fear that something is happening in the church that is undermining, or at least attempting to undermine, if it were possible, the truth. Some might say, oh, you're talking about that emergent church thing again, right? You're really coming down on that, Rick. I am talking about the emergent philosophy of all humanity in these last days. Always looking for the next newest best thing And I need to say this clearly, when time, or when the times, become the standard for our steps, we will stumble. When culture becomes the measure by which we do things, whether it's as a church or as individuals, we will fall. When Jesus is the standard, the foundation is sure. I believe that this was at the heart of David's problems. Cultural relativity. I really do. The more I read David's life and seeing, again, we've said he is a man who is incredibly in love with God, a man after God's own heart, and yet he is flawed. One of David's greatest flaws is though he loves God, he is passionate and faithful to the Lord, he's culturally relative. What do you mean? Well, I'll give you an example. Polygamy. Something we don't understand, and there are a couple of reasons why David had so many wives and concubines. Number one reason is a sexual reason. He wanted them. Simple enough. 
But there was another reason I stumbled across last week. We talked about it Wednesday night. It was a cultural reason. Rulers in the Middle East in that day had harems. The other kings in the surrounding nations, remember Israel said, give us a king like the nations around us. Well, they got it. Because all the other kings, the more wives you had, the more concubines, the more women, the more pavement you had around you. For those of you not here Wednesday night, the name Rizpah, it was a concubine's name, and it means pavement. And it's a perfect name because it's how so many women were treated in that time, like pavement, walked all over. But the more women were around you, the more royal and kingly you looked. It was a cultural thing. So not only David had a sexual problem, we'll talk more about that coming up in a few chapters with Bathsheba, but he also had a cultural problem. He's looking at all the other kings. He's looking at Saul before him. And he's saying, to be a king, to be respected, to have authority over the people, I need concubines. I need wives. I need to amass for myself many, many wives. Cultural relativity. Now, there are some Christians today that had an interesting conversation on Wednesday night about this. After Bible study, one of our brothers came up and he said to me, he said, what about this polygamy thing? Because I've had some interesting conversations with, with other Christians who, who were saying they think that polygamy was okay because God does not condemn it. And indeed, you read through the entire story, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, you don't see God condemning polygamy. So is it okay? Was it just that in that day, God allowed it, but then later He changed His mind? Now my answer to that is no. No, it was a cultural issue. It was a cultural thing. It was not a God-ordained or God-approved thing. Well, how do you know that, Rick? I'll, I'll give you some verses. They're not up here. You can look these up on your own if you want to. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 17. The Lord said to Moses to say to Aaron to tell the people, when you come into the land that the Lord has given you, and you get a king for yourself, your kings are not to multiply wives for themselves. Well, why is that? Because the wives will turn the king's heart away from the Lord. Which is exactly what happens to Solomon. It tells us in 2 Kings, <laughs> is it there? Maybe 1 Kings, I'll have to look it up. It tells us in the Bible that Solomon amassed all these wives for himself and concubines. He had over 700 wives, 300 concubines and princesses, a thousand women at his beck and call. And it tells us that his heart was turned away from the Lord. Exactly what the Lord said would happen if the kings amassed wives for themselves. So obviously the Lord had a problem with it then. We might say, yeah, but that's not a moral thing. Well, Deuteronomy 17, let me read this to you. It says the following. You may want to get comfortable because as Cheryl says, I'm getting on my high horse. Deuteronomy 17. Verse 17, he shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away, or, and, and nor shall he increase silver and gold for himself. It shall come about, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes, and that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left. Which law? Well, the law that included not increasing king, uh, wives for yourself. The whole law. What the king was supposed to do was bend his heart and his mind toward the law of God so he would not be caught up in culture. 
that the culture would not determine and drive what the man did, but the word would determine and lead the man into following Jesus, into following the Lord. Was it a culturally allowable thing, polygamy? Well, Jesus, in Matthew chapter 19, he said, don't you know that from the beginning it was not this way? That in the beginning, and he starts to quote out of Genesis chapter 2, and Jesus says, in the beginning, man is to leave his, his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What God has brought together, let, let no man separate. And so Jesus lays out the standard, one man for one woman for one life. That's the standard. Now, we don't all follow that. And, and I realize, and let me just say this, with understanding, I realize that in our culture today, there are many broken men. Many of you have gone through the pain of divorce. There are many of you who have a, a second or third or fourth spouse. And, and life has been rough because of it. And, and I defy anyone who's ever gone through that to stand up and say, that's the path to take. Anyone who's ever had a divorce would be able to stand up and say, it's not the best thing. It's painful. It's hard. It's difficult. It is not the standard. Jesus, when he was asked about it, reaches all the way back, not to David and Solomon, a thousand years before Jesus came, not to Abraham. He reaches back all the way to the very beginning and says, here's the standard from the day of creation, day six forward. One man, one woman for life. Is polygamy okay with God? No. It was a cultural thing. And culture is what catches David up. Culture is the problem, I believe, in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Keeping in step with the times. That's what's going on here. Keeping in step with the times. Just doing what everybody else does. Now, before we get back to it, a little bit of ark history. You know the ark we're talking about here. It's the ark of the covenant. That gold box made of acacia wood overlaid completely in gold inside and out. It had on it the mercy seat which sat on top, uh, on top of the lid, which had kind of a crown all the way around it, and then the two cherubim with the wings touching, facing each other on the top of this amazing Ark of the Covenant, this smallish box that they would carry. And inside the Ark went the Ten Commandments, the Law, and the jar of manna, and Aaron's rod that budded. All these things were placed into the Ark. But there were two golden poles made of acacia wood, also overlaid with gold, that went through the rings on either side of the ark. And this was how the ark was supposed to be transported by these poles. The, the priests would come and they, would, and they were not to touch the ark. Nobody was to touch the ark. And as a matter of fact, when it was being transported, it was covered over completely, not even looked at. And the priests would come up and they would lift it up on the poles and they would march and they were not to touch the ark. At this point, when our story begins in 2 Samuel chapter 6, it had been a hundred years since the ark had been in place in the tabernacle. Which means, for a hundred years, the people were not able to celebrate Yom Kippur. We kind of forget these things. We think that once God started the ball rolling, that every year Yom Kippur happened and they did all the sacrifices and they did everything they were supposed to do and it's not true. The Jewish people, through the years, messed it up big time, missed God's teachings completely. A hundred years, the ark, while the prophet Samuel was still a young boy, the ark was taken by the Philistines, 1 Samuel chapter 4, after the sons of Eli foolishly took it into battle. It stayed in the hands of the Philistines and in their territory for seven months, wreaking absolute havoc on every place that they took it. 
Remember the story of Dagon and his temple and they put the ark in the temple and Dagon fell over? And then they put the ark, they took Dagon, set him up, and the next day he fell over and his head was off and his hands were off here to Dagon tomorrow. We've talked about that story. They sent it back, the Philistines. They say, we can't have this in our territory. I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll stick it on a cart, which is interesting. We'll put it on a cart. And we'll have a couple oxen and we'll just whip the back of the oxen and wherever the oxen take it, that's where it's supposed to go. Well, the oxen take it directly into the territory of Israel. They take it to a place called Beth Shemesh. The Israelites of Beth Shemesh say, Wonderful, it's back! We have the ark! Hey, let's make sure everything's inside it. And you get this picture of people on a hillside all around the ark just going... I'm going to open the ark to check out what's inside of this. Come on. You know, and everybody's gathered around and they open up the lid, violating the law, to peek inside under the premise that they're going to see that everything's, you know, kosher. It's all still in there. And 50,000 Israelites are struck dead. You think the scene at the end of Indiana Jones, the first movie, was bad? This is. They're gone. Finally, the ark comes to rest at a place called Kiriath-Jerim, which is also Baal-Judah. Same place. When you see Baal-Judah here, that's Kiriath-Jerim. People had come to fear the ark of the covenant, which is exactly how the enemy works, because the ark of the covenant is where God said, I will meet you. I'll meet you there. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Don't go. Don't touch the ark. Don't go near the ark because that's where God. You know, you 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 get struck dead, man. You can't go near that thing. And there are a lot of so-called unchurched people who will not enter a church because they've just heard too many bad things. There's a fear there. Little side note here about evangelism. The reason why evangelism in a relationship works so much better is because when a person gets to know you and trust you and you have a good friendship, you're not threatening anymore. Church, for a non-church person, is a threatening place. There's guilt there. They're going to call out my sins. Or as, as one person said, if I go there, the whole church will burn down because of my presence. You know, There's fear there. So the best way to evangelize people is to get, first of all, the word evangelism out of your head and just replace it with sharing the gospel. And make friends with people and love them and show them Jesus. And then when you do invite them to come with you, they already know you. It's, oh yeah, I'll, I'll go with Barb. I'll go sit in church. Well, that's cool. Because I know her. She's not weird. Rod. But, but Barb, she's not weird. I can, I can hang with her. That's cool. Eric's all right. Eric and Marie, love them. I can sit with them, you know, for a half hour. And then we get to go to lunch, which is even better. So, you know, in relationship. Now, back to what I'm saying here. People feared the ark. And so nobody wanted to touch it. Nobody would go near it. Even all through Samuel's life, it stayed at Kiriath-Jerim, Baal-Judah. It's called Baal-Judah because Baal was once worshipped in this place. But once David set up his throne in Jerusalem, he determined it's time to bring the ark home. It's time to get the tabernacle, bring it to Jerusalem, and to bring the ark and put it back in the tabernacle. Because David was reading the law, he did love God's word. He was impacted by culture, but he still, you know, he was that guy who was between the new and the old. You know, kind of standing all over the old at that time was actually still pretty new. But this journey becomes problematic because David desires to bring it back in the wrong way. His desire to bring the ark is great, wonderful. Get the ark, bring it home. But the way he goes about it is absolutely wrong. Go back to verse 1 again and, and pay attention to these things. In fact, what I want, I want you to, in your own mind, think about three people in this story. 
and see where you might fall. There's David, there's Uzzah, and there's Michael. Three people. Which one might you be in, in heart? David, Uzzah, or Michael? Chapter 6, verse 1 again. Now David gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. David arose and went with all the people who were with him to Baal Judah, that's Kiriath-Jerim, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned above the cherubim, describing there the mercy seat. They placed the ark of God on a new cart, just as the Philistines had placed the ark on a cart to send it back to Israel that they might bring it from the house of Abinadab which was on the hill and Uzzah and Ahio the sons of Abinadab were leading the new cart so they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinadab which was on the hill and Ahio was walking ahead of the ark meanwhile David and all the house of Israel was celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of fir wood and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals the band was rocking the party was huge. The parade was going on. We're bringing back the ark. Yes. It's even on a float. I mean, this was a massive parade. The ark floats. And they're having a great time. Throngs of people gathered around. Probably singing the, the famous song at the time, Born in Israel. I was... Anyway. So they're singing this stuff and they're moving along. But there's something tragically wrong with this whole picture. There are some tragically wrong assumptions we can make as Christians today when our focus is keeping in step with the times rather than in keeping in step with the Lord. Parade's underway. The Ark of God is bouncing along atop a brand new cart. And here are some wrong assumptions for you. Wrong assumption number one. New is always better. New is always better. It has to be better. That's why we all need Vista. No, we've got to put word 2007 on because 2003 is the old thing. So 2000, I spent hours trying to get 2007 to work on my computer, which is supposed to save me time. The new. We get this idea, we've got to keep bringing the new, the change, the different thing. It's got to be constant. New is always better. It is a wrong assumption. Here we see the old way of carrying the ark is now passe. I mean, think about it. You're carrying this big, heavy golden box. It's hard on the back. You've got to take six guys to transport the thing. It's not comfortable. You could slip and drop it. I mean, let's get a nice wide cart. A new cart. Fresh with new wood. It's nice wheels. You know, good looking thing. Carrying the ark is impractical. It doesn't utilize the new technology that we have before us. So, so are you saying that new is bad? I, I didn't say new is bad. I actually believe new is a wonderful thing in the hands of God. I just think new is bad in the hands of man. Because in the hands of man, we tend to get so excited about new that we wipe out the old and we can't translate or transfer from one to the next. But with God, oh, the Lord says, Isaiah 65, 17, I create new heavens and a new earth and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. And I bet the new heaven and the new earth will not have Windows Vista. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure of that. New in the hands of God, always a good thing. New in the hands of man, not so much. But the problem with new is in the focus. New ways, new approaches, new programs, simply because it's the latest new thing. And I've shared with you, and I did last week, we are talking about the emerging church and the new focus and the new mentality and all the newness and there are new programs that are out there that every church can use. The new easy worship that didn't even start up for us this morning. It, it's a good thing. Michelle, it's alright. 
All this newness. And the next thing you know what we're talking about is new truth. We have a new truth. I was listening to the radio last night. I had to run hand over to a place and as I was listening I, I turned on and, and this woman was being interviewed and she was part of a group in uh, Montana and she was talking about the Lord and talking about the Spirit and I thought, oh, that's interesting. Give us a listen for a minute. Talking about you know being settled there and there was a whole group of them and they actually were, after her husband died, he, he shared that they really ought to move to Montana and, and hunker down and really because they really believe in life. Believe in life. And that God wants us to live. And so if, if nuclear holocaust happened or if war happened or whatever, we would have a place where we have bunkers and we could get down into it. And after the weeks go by and the nuclear fallout settles, we actually could come up and we could stay alive. And it all sounded so good and so positive. And the guy said, well, well now you all have kind of a, a mantra that you say. And she said, oh yeah, yeah, we do. And she said, you want to hear it? And he said, yeah. And all of a sudden her voice changed. And I kid you not, it was demonic. Her voice changed as she started talking about the violet flame. We are the keepers of the violet flame. And I won't go any further than that. But I had to turn off the radio. It was like, oh, a little click. It's a new thing. It's a new way of approaching God. Something we didn't know before, but now we know because I have a new enlightenment. New is always better. It's a wrong assumption. As if we're sticking God's most holy things on new carts. Now, you might say, okay, but, but the new cart would be easier for transportation. It would be more casual, granted, than you know, priests marching along. It would be a lot more casual. You just walk by the parade, and there's the float. we got the ark, and we can relax a little more. Wrong assumption number two. God is casual about his commands. God's casual, but he, God's kicked back. You know, he's my man. <laughs> he's easy going with all the stuff that we do. <laughs> God's casual about His commands. Exodus 25:14. God said, You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark with them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be removed from it. Numbers chapter 4, verse 15. God said, The sons of Kohath shall come to carry them so that they will not touch the holy th- objects and die. Verse 17 of Numbers 4, Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Do not let the tribe of the families of the Kohathites be cut off from among the Levites. Do this to them that they may live and not die when they approach the most holy objects. And it's the Kohathites, the priests of the tribe of Levi, the Kohathites were the ones who were to carry the ark. This is my way, the Lord says. This is the way I want you to do it. Well, sure, you might say. He said the ark was to be carried by priests with poles, but it ain't no big thing. What matters is that we're comfortable in our walk, right? What matters is that church is easy for people. Like butter. You know, like it's just easy going. There's comfortable seats, and, and you don't preach too long, man. You've got to keep it to about 20 minutes because people will start to wander off. Great. Hey, look, if you wander off while I'm teaching, maybe you'll wander into the Holy Spirit and you'll have a conversation there. Great. <laughs> Wonderful. And then he'll say, hey, hey, wait, wait, I want you to hear this, and you'll be back. <laughs> That's kind of how it works. USA Today, uh, January 9th, had an article in it, interesting, that was called Faith Found Outside the Church. And it gave this whole article about views of unchurched people, and this was a quote from it. It said, so much of American religion today is therapeutic in approach, focused on things you want to fix in your life. The article was rightly saying people don't go to institutions to get fixed. They don't go to get a certain two or three or four step plan of making my life a little bit better. They don't go to church for therapy. 
And yet that's what the church is all about today. It's therapy. Come on in and we'll show you how you can, you know, how you can make your job better. Come on in and we'll show you how you can make your marriage better. Come on in here and we'll show you how you can increase the satisfaction and, and the goodness in your life. And I've said this before. That you may come to Jesus and the satisfaction and goodness in your life may tank for a while. Until you discover a supreme goodness that is deeper than anything that the world can offer. Here's a thought. How about worshiping the Lord and keeping His Word because He's God and His Word is true? How about being involved in a fellowship where we fall down before the Father and say how great is our God, not because of what it does for me, but because of who He is, period. Man, if anything good happens to you and happens to me in our lives because we follow Jesus, praise God, that's wonderful. It's still not the point. The point is He's God. The point is this is truth. Whether I like it or not. Now I happen to like it. And I happen to know that the more holiness, the more happiness. And there is a correlation with the goodness of God in our lives. But what about God's word being truth? Exodus chapter 20 verse 1. At the beginning of the Ten Commandments, God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God. That's how he started the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God. He bases all of the commandments on Him. In fact, on His name. The Bible is so serious about this. The Lord was so serious about His Word that the Bible says in Psalm 138, verse 2, You have magnified your Word above all your name. Above your name. That verse blew me away the first time I heard it and read it. You have magnified your word above your name. Why? Because his word is as solid and faithful as his name. His word is absolute in its truth. And Jesus said in John 14, 50, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. You might say, man, lighten up. Chillax. You hear that phrase? I was so excited. Scott Richardson, he's very excited. This new phrase, chillax, he's calling this to his kids. And, and, and his daughter, Caitlin, she said last night to him, she said, Dad, that is so two years ago. <laughs> to which I say, Caitlin, chillax. Chillax. After all, you might say, okay, if God's not casual about his commandments, you're an awfully casual church to be talking about that, Rick. I mean, isn't the bridge a casual church? Look at how we're dressed. Some of you look nice. Others of you, come on, man. Jeans at church? Shirts untucked? Chillax. <laughs> isn't the bridge a casual church? And isn't that the secret to the fact that this church is growing right now? Because you're in a barn and it's new and different and, and it's casual. And people can spill coffee and it's no big deal. Isn't that your secret? No, it's not our secret. There's no strategy to that. You know why we meet in a barn? Because we don't have anywhere else to meet. It's the only place with a roof that God says, hey, you can, okay, we'll go there. We've been trying to buy land for four years. He says, no, no, the barn's good. And we didn't say, hey, if we meet in a barn, we can wear sweaters and jeans to church and tennis shoes and in the summertime, shorts. That's going to be great. And that's going to draw people from everywhere because that's how evangelism works. Not so, my friends. We may worship in a barn, we may come wearing jeans and t-shirts, but there is absolutely nothing casual about what the Lord is doing here. There's nothing casual about this. You need to understand, I take this more seriously than anything in my entire life. Because what is at stake here is the lives of men and women for eternity. And God is not casual about that. 
What is working at the bridge? His word, His spirit, His grace. These things are responsible and nothing else. I'm not asking people to start dressing up. We're not going to start bringing in straight back pews to make ourselves more uncomfortable. But if we become cavalier about God's commands, if we become casual about truth, we will undermine it. We need to understand it's only because of His power that we're saved in the first place. Which brings me to wrong assumption number three. The way mankind does it, wrong assumption number three, strength and personality lead the way. Strength and personality, that's what matters. That's how you do the new thing. That's how you get people going forward. You need strength and you need personality and you need to get strength and personality on the campaign trail with a message of change and we'll be in great shape. Verse 3 tells us that they placed the ark of God on a new cart that they might bring it from the house of Abinadab which was on the hill and Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were leading the new cart. Uzzah and Ahio. Uzzah's name means strong. Ahio's name means friendly Mr. Strong and Mr. Personality are leading the ark Mr. Strong and Mr. Friendly and it's a perfect picture for how people think we need to live today we've got Mr. Muscle and Mr. Personality and that's how we'll be relevant in this world and where does all this relevance get us it gets us thrashed verse 6 says when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon Uzzah Mr. Power Mr. Strength reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen nearly upset it. I've got to help God. He needs my strength to get it done. He needs my personality to make it happen. I've got to help him. So Uzzah reaches out to grab the side of the cart as it bumps along there. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah. And God struck him down there for his irreverence and he died there by the ark of God. Pay attention to this. Where does this judgment take place? It happens at the threshing floor of Nacon. Nacon, this guy's name, Nacon, means established. Kind of like truth. Established. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, Peter writes, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you know and have been established in the truth which is present with you. And that's what we're trying to do. That's what the focus is. I hope you're hearing it this morning, is be established in the truth. I've learned a thing about teaching, and that's that repetition is okay. Because in the Bible, we see stories come up again and again, and we see certain truths happen again and again. And what is the Lord doing but establishing us in what is consistent and solid and stable and true? All of First and Second Chronicles will repeat everything that we have studied in First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. Why? We finished Second Kings. I want to move on. God says, "No. I want you to pause and be sure you're established." And that's what Nathan's mean. His name means this. Sometimes we miss this. Sometimes we get bouncing along with our great ideas and our cultural relativity about how to get things done and God stops us dead in our tracks. And He does it at the threshing floor. The threshing floor is the place where the wheat and the chaff are separated. Where the empty shells are blown away from the weightier kernels. It's at the threshing floor that judgment takes place. Which is interesting to me because Matthew chapter 3 verse 12, John the Baptist said this of Jesus. He said his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. And he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. 
And what happens is, is we roll along comfortable and content with, with current and culturally hip things. On the march of man, everything's going great until we hit a bump. And Uzzah, Mr. Strength, reaches out a hand to give, to give God some help and he dies. And for a moment the discipline seems unfair. David certainly thought so. David saw this and he was angry about this. How can God do this? God, we're doing this for you. I mean, isn't that the whole point? We're bringing the ark on this cart. Okay, yeah, but it was the easiest way to do it. Us and Ohio, they're just good guys helping the ark. We're getting your job done, God. Our program is working. Getting the ark from where it was to where it needs to be so the people can worship you. Our heart is right. How can you do this thing? How can you discipline us when we're doing what we're doing for you? David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. And the place is called Perez Uzzah to this day, which is outburst against Uzzah. (laughs) It's a great name. Verse 9, David was then afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? And David was unwilling to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David with him. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite who must have been shaken in his boots as they brought it in. We can't take this to Jerusalem, so Obed, you get to keep it. I don't know if that's where he got his name. Obed, he doomed. <laughs> He's in trouble now. They put the ark there, and that guy's toast. Thus the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed, Edom, the Gittite, three months, and the Lord blessed Obed, Edom, and all his household. David asks the question, the question, I have this underlined in my Bible. It's a good one to focus on and think about. David says, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? How can the ark of God come to me? That is the question. It's the question of Viktor Frankl's man's search for meaning. How can I have this, this relationship, this meaning in this life? Pascal said, in every man there exists a God-shaped vacuum that only God can fill. So many of you, you realize this, you're going along in life, you're bumping along on the cart, and you're going, something's just not right. Something's missing here. No matter what I do, I feel an emptiness here. Pascal nailed it. It's a God-shaped vacuum. Or, if you like, in the words of the donut man, life without Jesus is like a donut. There's a hole in the middle of your heart. There's some cultural relevance for you. How can the glory of God come to me? And the answer is six easy steps. Six easy steps. The ark of God stayed at the house of Obed-Edom for three months, during which time David went back to the Word and he figured out what they had done wrong. How do you know that? Well, because this same story is retold in First Chronicles. And as a matter of fact, it's interesting. You may want to go back this week and read First Chronicles 15 and 16, because it's the same story but it's expanded. And we get more information that we didn't get the first time around. And it's a fascinating take. David went back to the word. First Chronicles 15 verse 2. David said, No one is to carry the ark of God but the Levites. For the Lord chose them to carry the ark of God and to minister to him forever. So David learned something. First Chronicles 15 verse 13. David says, Because you did not carry it at the first, the Lord our God made an outburst on us for which we did not seek him according to the ordinance. So while Obed-Edom was being blessed by the presence of the ark, David was being blessed because he was in the word, going back and restudying and rethinking. We've got to get the ark to Jerusalem. How do we do that? And then he realized, oh, the Lord already knows how. 
the Lord already told us how. We don't have to do a new thing to get it there. We can just do it God's way. And so they do. Watch how they do it. The second time, verse 12. Now it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him on account of the ark of God. David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. And so it was when the bearers of the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling. That's how you do it. There are your six steps right there. Six steps to bringing the glory of God into your life, into your heart. Verse 14, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. That's how you do it. Every six steps, they stopped, and they worshipped. Every six steps. Baal Judah, or Kiriath-Jerim, is ten miles from Jerusalem. This is not efficiency. In fact, this is the most inefficient way you can do it. First of all, you're going to carry it, but you're going to put that thing up on the shoulders and march six steps. Two, three, four, five, six. Set down the ark. Set up an altar. Sacrifice an ox and a fatling. When all that's done, pick up the ark again. One, two, three, four, five, six. We know, Rick, get through the sermon. Slow down. This is not an efficient way to do things, to move the ark in this way. No, it's not efficient, but it's effective. You know what the difference is between efficiency and effectiveness? Efficiency is doing things right. Effectiveness is doing the right thing. It's getting the job done in the right way. Six steps. What does the number six represent in the Bible? Man. Six is the number of man. Revelation chapter 13 verse 18 A verse that freaks out the world But shouldn't freak you out at all John writes here is wisdom Let him who has understanding Calculate the number of the beast For the number is that of a man And his number is 666 Why? Because 666 never gets to 7 7 is the number of completion in the Bible 6 is incomplete Man was created on the 6th day Man works for 6 days And on the 7th he rests but six is the number of man, and six never quite gets there. Six point six 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 repeating. You never get to seven. The number of the beast, that's just saying that when the beast comes, when Antichrist comes on the scene in the world, he will just be a man. He'll be a human being, demon possessed, and ultimately Satan possessed, but it is going to be a human being. That's what John's saying there, very simply. Six is the number of a man. Now, I, I shared before, it is possible here that Israel had been spiritually incomplete for a hundred years. With the ark and the altar of sacrifice at the tabernacle separated, they could not celebrate Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. In other words, for a hundred years, Israel was without atonement. It's been 2,000 years that Israel has not had atonement. When the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70 and with it all that was inside burned up, no more sacrifice. And in fact, as we've shared in here before, the Jewish faith, Jewish religion right now is missing its most central element and that is sacrifice. And more than that, it's the Day of Atonement. If the ark is not sitting in the tabernacle as it wasn't for a hundred years and as it hasn't been for two thousand years now, the high priest cannot take the blood of sacrifice, go into the Holy of Holies once a year, sprinkle the blood on the ark and have atonement for the people. 
For a hundred years they had been walking incomplete. They couldn't even truly approach God in the way He wanted them to approach Him because the ark was off somewhere else. Incomplete. Here's my point. I am incomplete without sacrifice. I am just 666. I am beastly without the sacrifice. I walk six days. And on the seventh, that's why we stop and we consider the cross again. Every six days, we stop and we consider the cross again. Every six days, we stop. We take communion together. We walk six steps. We stop. We consider the sacrifice of Jesus. Six days, six steps to glory. I said in a recent message that in Jesus, the only past that determines my future is the cross. And so we consider the cross. Well, verse verse 14 going on, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. And so David and all the house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with the shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. And again, you see the difference here between what they're doing now and what they were doing then. Suddenly David, David starts a toga party, right? Let me explain something that I think has been missed quite a bit. This whole idea of David dancing in the linen ephod. You ever saw a long time ago, there was a movie they made, King David. What was the guy? Um, oh, what's the guy who played in that? What? Richard Gere. Richard, Richard Gere, yeah. Richard Gere playing David, which actually is pretty appropriate, <laughs> I think, in some ways. But in the movie, he's dancing in the quote-unquote linen ephod. It was a toga wasn't much on him. And people for years have stood up, and I've heard some actually recent sermons where the guy said, he's dancing in his underwear. I mean, this was really embarrassing. That's what was going on. No, it's not. Not at all. If you say that, you didn't read First Chronicles 15, which explains the linen ephod to us and tells us what actually was going on. The linen ephod, gang, was what the priests wore. It was the simple linen garment of the priest. But what David did in 1 Chronicles 15.27 tells us what he did is he attired not only the priests in that but the entire choir. All of the singers were wearing the same thing. And in fact, when David is dancing before the Lord in the linen ephod he would be difficult to pick out of the crowd. He wouldn't look like the king. He'd be like anybody else. David suddenly was heart right before the Lord because he was not attracting attention to himself. He was just one of the masses worshiping and praising God and the attention was where it should be on the Lord and not on David. Something else is interesting here when you look at verse 5 there's all kinds of pomp and circumstance and and at first I had to take out a whole point of my sermon this is what study does. Meanwhile David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of fir wood and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals and I thought oh there's a problem it's all about the music. And the second time what we read, verse 15, is David and all the house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. They had this whole comparison about the trumpet versus all these instruments. Instruments of wood. Instruments made and played by the hand versus the instruments of the breath. Well, then you go over to 1 Chronicles 16 and you find out, no, they still had all the other instruments going on. The parade was still happening. The music was still loud. All the instruments were there. But I can tell you this, there was one instrument missing from the first time around. Verse 15 tells us it was the trumpet. Literally there the Hebrew word is the shofar. The first time they didn't have the shofar. The second time they were blowing the shofar. What's the difference? Well, the shofar is the instrument of the Spirit. What do you mean? It's blown by the breath. 
The power of the music that comes out of the shofar, the trumpet blast, is, is the breath. In Hebrew, ruach. In Greek, pneuma. Ruach and pneuma mean spirit. Spirit or breath, breath or spirit. And the Lord says it's not by might, Uzzah. Not by power, Ohio. But by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts, Zechariah 4.16. The whole mentality of worship here is shifted. They're still worshiping. They still have the band. But the mentality is different. The focus is different. It's all on the Lord. Now watch what happens here as we finish up. Then it happened as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David that Michael the daughter of Saul looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord and she despised him in her heart hold that thought verse 17 so they brought the ark of the Lord and they set it in its place inside the tent which David had pitched for it and David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord and when David had finished offering the burnt offering and the peace offerings he blessed the people in the name of the Lord and further, he distributed to all the people, to all the multitude of Israel, both the men and women, a cake of bread, one of dates, and one of raisins to each, which would have been huge. All the people of Israel. This is a massive, massive giving of food, rich in those days. And then all the people departed to his own house. There's many things we can say in here. I'm just going to say this. Pure spiritual worship just makes you want to bless others. The more you worship the Lord, the more you are caught up into the person of the Lord, of who Jesus is, the more you want to go out and bless others. And David comes into Jerusalem and he is full of the Lord and he is excited and the ark is back and worship is happening. And as he is overflowing with this passionate dance before the Lord, he says, okay, gifts, we got to give, we got to give. Cakes of, of raisins and dates and bread, let's give it to everybody. Everybody needs to have some today. Everyone needs an extra tax rebate. Everybody needs to be given something. This is, this is wonderful. See, in our culture right now, that's what's going on. Everybody's freaking out because the economy's not doing well. So we've got to kind of, we got to prime the pump. Let's give people a little extra on their tax refunds, which I'm okay with, by the way. That's fine with me if they want to do that. But the motivation is completely different here. David is worshiping, and out of his worship, he's like, oh, I've got to give. I want to give. That's what happens when we turn to the cross of sacrifice. I want to give the blessing away. Now, back to Michael, verse 20. But when David returned to bless his household, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David. And she said, How the king of Israel distinguished himself today. I wish I could get Cheryl to come do this in her valley girl voice. would be great. <laughs> he uncovered himself today in the eyes of his servants' maids as one of the foolish ones shamelessly uncovered himself. <laughs> and so David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me ruler over the, Lord, over the people of the Lord over Israel. Therefore I will celebrate before the Lord and I will be more lightly esteemed, more undignified than this. And will be humble in my own eyes, but with the maids of whom you have spoken with them, I will be distinguished. So Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. It's a sad situation between Michael and David. And by the way, has that ever happened to you? You come out of worship, and you are so full of the Lord, and you're so excited about Him. You just want to share Him with someone, and you walk in the door of your house, and someone at home goes, nee, 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 nee. Oh, yeah, your big church thing. Wonderful. Whatever. While you were gone, there was stuff I was working all morning. <laughs> While you're off doing your little church thing. 
Or maybe you walk into work on a Sunday morning or Monday morning. You just want to tell what happened on Sunday. And you share with a coworker, and someone walks by and goes, <laughs> and it just deflates you. This lets the wind out of your sails. Think about this. David is on an absolute spiritual high like no other. He has had the best retreat of his life. He's been in the Word three months. He's bringing it. Everything is going great for David until he comes to his own house. He's blessing people. He's handing out the cakes to all of Israel. And people are going, Praise the Lord! Way to go, David! And David's going, Yeah, this is cool. And everybody's happy. I'm going to go home and share it now with my family. And he walks in the door and Michael goes, Me, 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 me. And David's like, You've got to be kidding me. In my own house, she says, What are you doing? It's so foolish. He's blown away. And so he turns it right around on her and he says, Look, God chose me. And by the way, David has every right to say what he says at this point. David, who was patient for years and years and years for the Lord to establish his kingdom. And when God established his kingdom, now David can say, God chose me for this. God put me in this place. And it was not for you that I danced. It was not for Israel that I danced. It was for the Lord. And if I have to become undignified, so be it. If I have to look like a fool, if it brings blessing and praise to the Lord, I am going to do that. And by the way, the story ends with Michael never having a child. Some say, oh, so God made her barren? Possibly. It also may simply be, be because David never slept with her again. But either way, Michael remained barren. And I want you to understand something, gang. If you are a person who despises worship, you're going to find it very difficult to be fruitful for the Lord. If you sit there and you go, I'm not going to do that singing thing, that's what those, you know, the women can sing and the guys are a little, you know, they can sing and that's fine, but I, you know, it's just, it's not my thing. Worship's not my thing. Like I know Pastor Rick starts teaching about 45 minutes after the hour, so I'm going to wait and show up then. Because I, I want to get the teaching. That's good and intellectual. And, you know, I can do... But, no, I worship. I don't know. That's just, that's just not my thing. If you're dispassionate about worship, if you despise it, you're going to have trouble being fruitful for the Lord. You will find yourself barren spiritually. Because worship is how God nurtures in us and seeds in us things that cannot happen any other way. If you think there's a culturally appropriate way to approach God without all these Christian trappings and things, if you're afraid of how you might look to other people in this world, you're going to have a hard time bearing fruit for the Lord. But if you could care less, if you're willing to be undignified, if you're willing to say, hey, I, I just love God. I can't help what I look like. I just love God. And you will be fruitful. The way I see it is we have three options. We have Michael, Uzzah, and David. Michael despising the beauty of passionate worship. This will leave us barren. Uzzah thinking that we can in our strength make things happen for God. It will leave us eventually dead like chaff on the threshing floor. Or David. David blew it. David blew it big time. First half of the story was David blowing it. But what did he do? He went back to the word. He studied it. He read it. He meditated on it. He thought about it. And he realized there is a right way. There is a way that God already told us. Oh, it's an ancient way. I've got to go back to the Old Testament commentary of several hundred years ago. But it's a right way. And we can follow that like David. And then humbly, simply, six steps at a time. Walk and worship. Walk and worship. And we will find ourselves dancing in glory. Amen?
Now, First Chronicles chapter 16, we'll end here. David wrote a song. And actually, it's an interesting song because he takes in it three different psalms that he wrote. And he pieces them together for this song of worship that he teaches all the singers. And this is what they sang while they're bringing the ark into Jerusalem. I'm not going to read all of it. You can do that yourself. But verses 8 through 11, First uh, Chronicles chapter 16. Oh, give thanks to the Lord and call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Sing to Him. Sing praises to Him. Speak of all His wonders. Glory in His holy name. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad. Listen to this. Seek seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His face continually. His strength. And his face continually, every six steps, stop and worship. Let's bow. Lord Jesus, we praise you. And we pause in our six steps of the week to do so. Lord, we recognize this not as a prescription for six days of walking without you and then stopping to worship but every moment of my life to be continually praising you to be focused on you that we might see your glory Father I pray that in all that goes on around us we would have the blessing of your Holy Spirit to stay simple I just pray this over the bridge however long we're here However long life goes on and lasts and however long this fellowship is is privileged to meet and gather, Lord, I ask you to keep us simple. Doing simple things. Not caught up in all the change, the, the new hype, but always coming back very simply to your word, Father. Always coming back very simply to your Holy Spirit. Always coming back to worship and to who you are and to what you are about. And Lord, when the time comes for you to do that new thing, I believe we'll be ready. I truly do. Father, bless this fellowship this morning. And lead us in the way everlasting, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.